Many things shape our identity. Some of those influences are beyond our control, such as our race, our sex, the circumstances of our birth. But other parts of our identity are in our control. They are based on the choices we make and the actions we take. Thus, we're shaped both by the circumstances which thrust themselves into our lives and by how we choose to respond to our circumstances. Identity is also multi-layered. We have our internal identities, how we perceive ourselves, our broadcast identities, what we intentionally present to others, which may vary depending on who we're presenting ourselves to, and our external identities, how other people perceive us, which is colored by their own life experiences and their own learned biases. When human means, beings meet somebody for the first time, we very quickly make assumptions about their identity. One study showed participants a photograph and asked participants to describe that person. We're gonna try that here. Let's take a really quick look at this picture. Now ask yourself, based on what you just saw, do you believe that person is trustworthy or not? Likeable or not? In, one stu in this study, the viewers formed remarkably consistent impressions after seeing the image for only one-tenth of a second. You guys had a whole second there. <laughs> but after one-tenth of a second, people make assumptions about what they see. Another study revealed that even if people were later given additional information that contradicted their first impression, it was difficult for them to override their initial thoughts. First impressions are snap judgments. When you meet someone for the first time, you do a quick tally of all the ways that person is either like you or not like you. Is like the people you know and trust or is different than the people you know and trust? You take into account their race, gender presentation, clothing, hairstyle, weight, voice, accent, and more. And you create a story in your head, making a variety of unconscious assumptions about what you see and hear, interpreted through your own lens. When somebody sees me for the first time, I know people don't first notice my race, my gender, the fact that I wear glasses or the color of my shirt. The first thing they notice, even from a distance, is that I only have one leg. And they begin constructing stories about me based on that singular fact. And yes, it's an important fact. And yes, that story helps to shape my identity. But my disability doesn't define me. There are many other things that form my full identity and that make me who I am. Today, I'm going to follow the approach of Ira Glass on This American Life, and I'm going to tell you a story in three acts. Act one, so what happened to my leg? Act two, what is my identity? And act three, how does this relate to the broader questions of identity and privilege? So act one, why I have one leg. Most of you have been too polite to ask, so you might not know. <laughs> so let's jump back to my ninth grade year. I was 15 years old. I had an easy, uneventful childhood and early adolescence. I lived in the same house my whole life, had a calm family life, dinner was on the table every night at 5.30 p.m. My older siblings and my parents were always around if I needed them, but I'd been raised to be very independent. I was pretty athletic. I was happy socially with lots of friends. I was one of the top students in school. Overall, I was a pretty together and pretty typical kid. Then on New Year's Eve when I was 15, I found a lump on my right leg, just above the knee. I started freaking out, convinced it was cancer. So in a panic, I went to my brother. He took a quick look and declared with all the confidence of a 17-year-old sage, eh, it's just a swollen muscle. Don't worry about it. Wrap it in an ace bandage and it'll get better. So that's exactly what I did for the next month. I didn't mention anything to my parents or anyone else because it's a swelled muscle. No biggie. On a Sunday at the end of January, I went ice skating with my church. By Monday night, I couldn't walk without limping. 
So I finally told my mom about this lump thing. The next morning, we went to the doctor. My doctor took one look, sent me for x-rays, sent me to another doctor. That doctor took one look at my x-ray and told us he was sending us to Denver Children's Hospital that night. So the next few days were a whirlwind of tests, a biopsy, and a diagnosis. Osteogenic sarcoma, bone cancer. The lump that I could see that was the size of my fist was half of a tumor that went halfway through my femur. So by the end of the week, there were decisions to be made. The best option was one month of chemo, then an amputation, then eight more months of chemotherapy. With that most aggressive option, they estimated that my five-year survival odds, so the chance that I would reach 20 years old, was about 20%. So you would think that would have been terribly frightening, and it may have been for my family and friends. If it was, they hid that fear from me. But I didn't hear the odds as an 80% chance I wouldn't survive. I heard that I just had to be in the top 20% of people in this situation. <laughs> and remember, I was a cocky kid, kind of confident in my own abilities. I'd never gotten less than a 90% on a test in my whole life. So if I was always in the top 10% of everything, obviously I was going to be in the top 20% here. So this was a piece of cake. If I just went through the required steps, it would all turn out fine. I never doubted that. You've got to love an adolescent's belief in their own immortality, right? <laughs> so that's begun nine months of difficult, nine difficult months of chemotherapy, amputation, more chemo, physical therapy, more chemo, get an artificial leg, and more chemo. I was sick as a dog. I'd get my treatment, and then I'd spend three or four days vomiting nonstop. Then I'd have 10 days to recover. Then I'd start again. I was the same height I am now, five foot four, and after a few months, I weighed 55 pounds. But I was back in school by partway through March, and I finished ninth grade with my class, with an A minus average. And then I started high school in the fall. I'd lost all my hair, and that was a really big deal to me. I never let anyone see me without my wig, even on my sick days at home. The idea of being bald was much more upsetting to me than having one leg was. In the long run, it turns out that was a really great coping mechanism, because the hair grew back and the leg has not yet. <laughs> So a year after this process started, I was back in school full-time, back to a reasonable weight, my hair was growing in, I'd gotten pretty good on my artificial leg, and I was learning how to ski. Five years later, not only had I survived that five-year mark, I was in college in Boston, and I was doing fine. Ten years later, I was living in Redmond, married, working as a social worker at Children's Hospital with kids with cancer, and I was pregnant with my first child. That was Martin over there. <laughs> Now it's 35 years later. Today, March 12th, happens to be the 35th anniversary of my amputation. Not only have I been cancer-free for all that time, I'm generally in better health than most people my age. So that year I spent on chemo was, to be honest, a really crappy year. And yes, my treatment resulted in me losing my leg, but in retrospect, it's not so bad when it buys you 35 plus years of good health. It also bought me a whole lot of perspective. Having that close brush with death ingrained in me a whole new, uh, new attitudes like, Life's too short to hate your job. Anger and hate only waste precious life energy. And today I was listening to a podcast featuring our own Paul David. Paul was interviewed on a podcast called Death the Podcast. <laughs> and at the beginning of the podcast, the, the interviewer said that the reason she hosts this podcast is she says, ultimately, if we are mo more open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experiencing life. When I was diagnosed with cancer, I was 15 year old on the cusp of figuring out my identity, figuring out who I would be as an independent adult. So losing my leg at that developmental point obviously had a big impact on shaping my identity. And yet, the fact that I'm a cancer survivor and an amputee 
is old news for me. There's so many other things that matter to me at least as much. So let's move on to F2. What is my identity? So when we look at the question of identity, many times we're asked to simplify things down to one label, like checking boxes on a form. The problem is that those labels are defined through the lens of our dominant culture, which makes a whole lot of assumptions in what options they offer. One of my favorite assumptions about two legs now, I'm discovering that my son is in kindergarten. There's a lot of math problems for kindergartners that are all about, if there are five people in the room, how many legs are there in the room? <laughs> it's a different answer in my family than it might be in yours. <laughs> Those assumptions shape the world around us. So on a form, choosing which box to mark isn't as straightforward as it seems. So the question, what is your gender, is almost always followed by two boxes. The answer is not that simple, as my transgender son can tell you. Race is not simple. A Chinese-American man told me how picking just one box meant choosing one race over another and denying part of his ancestry. And checking that box that said other didn't feel satisfying either. How about religion? There's several of you that I see are here at church every Sunday. But I'm guessing many of you are stymied when asked whether you're religious or asked whether you believe in a supreme being. I imagine most Unitarians want to write in, it's complicated. <laughs> so when I see a form asking if I'm disabled, I have an internal debate about my answer. First is the word. Most disability rights advocates do recommend using the word disability. I personally don't like it because disabled implies that I'm not able to do things. I can do almost anything. I can ski, ice skate, rollerblade. I can carry a kid, I can move furniture. I can't run, so I'm not gonna keep up with Paul anytime soon on the trail. And I can't do ballroom dance or tap dance, anything that has that kind of, you know, step, ball, change, step, ball, change. But, <laughs> but I don't feel disabled. If I have to pick one word for myself, I usually say I, usually say I have one leg or I use crutches. If I need to meet a stranger in a Starbucks, all I have to do is say, I'm the one with one leg, and I know they'll find me. <laughs> if I had to choose a label, I like handicapped, because in sports you give a handicap to the really talented person so the other people have a chance to keep up. <laughs> but beyond language choice, when I'm deciding whether to mark a box, I end up asking myself, why are they asking the question? Peter and my kids are Hispanic, and we have the same debates for them. Are they Hispanic? Are they not Hispanic? When do we check it? When don't we? So if it's a demographic service, survey to assess needs, like do we need to offer services for the disabled? Do we need to offer Spanish-speaking translations for things? We always add our family check marks to the tally to increase the chance that people who need services will get them. If it's something asking specifically if I need services, like a tour asking if I need any special accommodations, I say no, because I don't. I basically, if I'm with my parents or in-laws, I'm like, if people in their 80s can do this, I can do this, no problem. <laughs> um, if I think saying yes will benefit me at the detriment of someone else, I say no. So for example, I was once offered a scholarship for grad school that was earmarked for a person with a disability. I turned it down and told them to offer it to someone else because I could afford tuition and not everyone can. So on paper or online, I make a lot of choices about whether to reveal my disability. In person, and how to present myself to the world, I also make choices. I could wear an artificial leg. I did most of the time, back in high school and college. It made people more comfortable. Even if they knew it was an artificial leg, it was somehow easier for them to pretend that I was normal. But my artificial leg was uncomfortable to wear, and it slowed me down. So I stopped wearing it. 
I decided it was more important to me to be able to move easily in the world than it is to worry about how I look to others. Yeah, modern artificial legs are better. Maybe someday I'll wear one. But for now, I don't want it. I don't need it. It's partially about mobility and convenience, but it's also about identity. This is who I am. <laughs> Wearing a prosthesis feels like trying to hide that. But having one leg makes it hard for me to be invisible. People remember me. I often have strangers say things like, hey, your kid goes to Lakeview, right? There were a hundred other new kindergartners this year, and two days into the school year at PCC, I'm getting recognized. <laughs> so I know that I'm visible. And because my handicap is visible, whenever I move through the world, I represent disabled people. Anyone who's a part of a marginalized population in a dominant culture, I mean, up being a representative <laughs> and have to be aware of that. I'm often asked to answer questions or speak or write about how to better serve people with disabilities. And I do, but I'm always very careful to say that I can only speak to my experience. And other people with disabilities can have very different experiences and very different perspectives. So my nature is to be extremely independent and not ask anyone for help anytime. Remember, I was raised in Wyoming by a military family. They were tough stock. <laughs> so I have to figure out when to ask for help, or more importantly, sometimes when to, ever, when to accept help that is offered. So whenever anyone opens the door for me or gives me a bus, seat on the bus, I say yes, and I say thank you. I don't need it, but I want them to have a positive exper experience because the next time they see a person with a disability, I want them to offer their assistance. When I pull my car into a parking lot, I decide whether or not to use the handicap spaces. Years ago, I used to avoid them because I don't need them. I can walk for miles, right? But disability rights advocates encouraged me to rethink that. They said if every time people pull into a parking lot, they see lots of empty handicapped spaces, then it's really tempting for them to use those spaces because they say, no one else is parking there. <laughs> so if they, instead they see me getting out of my car on one leg and crutches, they think, wow, I'm glad I didn't park there because she really needed that. <laughs> so I never take the last handicapped space because I know someone will come along who needs it worse than I do. But if there are several spaces, I always take one. So even after 35 years as an amputee, I'm still sorting through identity questions and about whether I view myself as disabled. Do I define myself in that way? But honestly, most of the time when I think about my identity, again, this is old news. So I don't really focus on that or on one label because so many others apply. There's so many things that make me, me. In the video we watched at the start of the service, all the participants were put in a box based on their identity. And all they could see was what made them different from the other boxes. But then as the hosts listed other identities, people began stepping forward and seeing all the things that they have in common. What makes me different from you is that I only have one leg. That's the first box you might put me into. But there are many other things that define me. Some of these I may have in common with many of you. I want you to think about whether you'd step out of your two-legged box and join me in any of these boxes. I am a cancer survivor. I'm heterosexual, cisgender woman. I'm married. And I have been married to one man for more than half my life. I'm a pacifist. I'm a bleeding heart, far left liberal. <laughs> I'm a skier, a swimmer, a dancer, and I love long walks. I'm a movie buff, a musical theater fan who sings Broadway show, show tunes in a shower, as does everyone else in my family, <laughs> and an avid reader. I grew up Methodist, now I'm UU. I'm a social worker, a doula, a health educator, a parent educator, a kid's science teacher, and an author. I live in Kirkland, and I'm a Pacific Northwest person now. 
I start every day with a cup of tea and enjoy a glass of wine with dinner. And the most important identity to me is that I am a mom. Parenting Martin and Izzy and Ben is the most important thing that I do and the one I try hardest to get right. And that parenting identity has led me to my current career. I work as a parent educator for Bellevue College. I teach parents about everything related to parenting, from potty training to early literacy to emotional development. Why do I think it's so important to get things right in those early years? I want you to think back to the sermon last week if you were here. Last week, Mike Lissagor shared a snippet from his childhood. He said, we moved several times. My dad was always losing his job or losing his temper. My oldest sister was always running away from home. Mike talked about how the fear and, the and despair shaped much of his early life and how hard it was for him to find a path back to hope. I had the opposite experience. I had a childhood that taught me the world is a safe place filled with good people. I grew up trusting that things would always turn out okay in the end. So cancer at 15 didn't scare me because I had the privilege of a happy childhood. In his book, Secrets of Happy Families, Mike Filer says, when faced with a, ha with a challenge, happy families, like happy people, just add a new chapter to their life. Add a new chapter to their life story that shows them overcoming the hardship. That was certainly my experience. My goal with the families I work with is to help them build that same resilience. I want children to hear messages like Molly Lou Mellon heard from her grandma. Believe in yourself, and the world will believe in you too. So it's time for act three. How does my experience relate to the broader questions of identity, privilege, and intersectionality? At the beginning, I said, many things shape our identity. Some are based on choices we take and actions we take, but many influences are beyond our control. For me, that included childhood cancer. But for all of us, that includes our race, our biological sex, and more. And that's why we need to talk about privilege and intersectionality. So what is privilege? Yesterday on our North Lake Facebook page, Judith Shattuck posted a fabulous video about white privilege, and I encourage you to watch that. I'm just gonna summarize briefly here about privilege. If we acknowledge that African Americans in the United States experience more discrimination or oppression than Caucasian Americans, that also says that white people have privilege compared to black people. Let's look at a few categories. This is how most Americans would fill in the chart for what groups are more likely to experience privilege and which are more likely to experience oppression. So what is intersectionality? Well, we all have multiple identities and we're all members of more than one community at the same time. When we add those all together, they compound. For example, a black lesbian experiences racism and sexism and homophobia. The oppression compounds. She has fewer opportunities and faces more challenges than a white lesbian or a black man or a gay white man. So for me, I can honestly say that my disability hasn't been a big obstacle to me but I have to acknowledge that much of that is due to privilege. When most of the other cards in the deck were stacked in my favor, it's easier to ignore the disability card. For example, 40% of, uh, of people with disabilities report experiencing discrimination in the workplace. I used to, on the way to work every day, pass a man standing on the I-5 on-ramp with a sign saying, can't work. He was an amputee. Right? I'm like, I'm on my way to work. <laughs> but I understand there may be some more to his story than I know from watching him. My disability has never limited my ability to get a job, do a job, or keep a job. It helps that I'm well-educated. 
I have the privilege of an educated family that helped me do and well in school. So I got a full ride scholarship to college. And then I went on to grad school because my husband's income could support our family. Part of it's the education. Part of my job success is also because I'm white, straight, and cisgender. If I was any other category, it might not be so easy. I've also chosen female-dominated fields, so my gender has never been an issue. I have been, overall, blessed to live an easy life. I mean, I had cancer when I was 15, and I have one leg. But on balance, my life is pretty darn good. So today, I've shared my story of living life on one leg. But any other amputee's story, their identity, might be very different. Identity is complex. None of us can define our identity in just a few checkbox labels. Our identities, the unique lights that we let shine, are products of all our history, our group identities, accidental encounters, beliefs, choices, and actions. When we sing about this little light of mine, remember that all light is made up of many colors of light shining together. So let your own unique light shine, sharing all the contradictions that make you, you. As Judy Garland said, always be a first-rate version of yourself and not a second-rate version of anyone else. <laughs>